Let's let's dive uh, straight in. Last time we we did verses seven through twelve, and we kind of started to get into verses thirteen and fourteen. Um, this week we're going to go through uh, from fifteen, uh, well, from thirteen again. As I say, we'll complete that, and then from fifteen to twenty. Uh, I'll just say from the off that I don't agree with the paragraph structure in the legacy here, um, that I think that 20 is a, is a good break. Um, so don't think that I just have run out of time and I'm not finishing the passage, but rather the intention is only to go to verse 20 today. By way of context, so that we remind ourselves where we're at and we understand the flow of what is happening before us, here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we have this situation whereby this uh, we've had... Uh, We've talked about what a righteous person looks like. We've talked about what true righteousness is. We've talked about how we practice our righteousness. And we're really coming to the end of that whole section. And and almost like bookends, we're going to end the Sermon on the Mount with the same kind of question that we began with, which is essentially, are we one of the righteous ones? Have we truly repented? That's really what was answered in chapter 5 in the first few verses in the Beatitudes. And it is where we're going to end to some degree as well. And we're heading in that direction. And here in verse 7, as we were at last week, the asking and it being given, the seeking and you will find it, the knocking and it will be opened, is only to be understood in the context and flow of the Sermon on the Mount. And it is those of us who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness that can be sure that if that is something that we seek, that it's something that God will bring about and do. And rather than it being some sort of prosperity gospel preacher's uh, sort of... Um, you know, utopia with regards to whatever you want, you'll get if you have enough faith. That rather it is actually a, um, a statement that is, is in complete harmony with those of us who would submit ourselves to Christ, submit ourselves to the Word of God, and seek and pursue His righteousness because of the work that the Holy Spirit has done in our hearts. And the assurance that we had last time was that if we want to be righteous, that God will be gracious and give that to us. That there is no guarantee that if you want to have, you know... Your roof not leaking, which I know several of us have, not just in the church. Your cars working, which several of us right now don't have, and some aren't here as a result. Whatever it is that we want, there is no guarantee of that. But if we desire to follow Christ, if we desire to walk in the manner that he has called us to walk, if we desire to put aside our sin and to walk with him, that is a prayer that God will always answer. And sometimes it's not having our car fixed, not having the roof fixed, and not having our lives go as we would like. That it are very things that lead us to trusting Him, that lead us to that place of maturity. 
that we need to be people who pursue maturity more than we pursue comfort. And that really is where we left last time. This balance of being people whose hearts and minds are set upon the right way and not on our own personal comfort. And it is in that context then that we saw verse 12, just again as a quick reminder, that it isn't when it says whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them, it's, this isn't the pay it forward mantra that is there in the world. It's not the sort of, you know, somebody bought you a meal, so you buy somebody else a meal because that's what you would want them to do for you and blah, blah, blah. No, rather it's in the context of the preceding parts of the Sermon on the Mount and it's a case of we should want other people to be righteous too. And if they want to be righteous then normally we will have a warm reception to that. But if they don't want to be righteous, then we're always going to have a fairly bad reception. And we need to be prepared for that and ready for that. And of course, the Sermon on the Mount has mentioned that a couple of times already. That our desire should be for others to be glorified. And just as God doesn't give us whatever we want for our own comfort, we are not obliged to give those who ask of us whatever they want. Again, we already dealt with this earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount, um, verses that are often taken out of context. But what it is, is that we are, we are definitely obliged to help people in their pursuit of righteousness. We should not be people who turn away those who are seeking after Jesus. We should not be people who are turning away those who are seeking to live righteous lives. And that led us to verses 13 and 14, which is where we kind of mentioned it briefly, we noted how it fitted into that context, and then we kind of just left it, and uh, this is kind of where we'll pick up properly this week. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now listen, I am well aware of how these verses are typically taught in our circles. I'm well aware, because I do read ahead, trust me, that at the end of this chapter, and in fact the very next section, we're going to be dealing with people who say, Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you. And so I know that these verses are so often used in an evangelistic sense. In the sense that, hey guys, the road is, is, you know, the road to salvation is a narrow one, the way to destruction is a broad one, and we use that to preach the gospel. Now I'm not saying that that is a misapplication of these verses, because I think it's perfectly fine, as we will see. But I don't think that is what is being said specifically in context. Look at the context that we've just dealt with. He's talking to believers. He's talking to those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who are poor in spirit, who mourn over their sin, who are lowly, who are merciful, who are pure in heart. He's talking to those who are saved. He's given them clear direction. The way of the Pharisees is not how we interpret the law. This is how you should interpret the law in the pursuit of righteousness. Therefore, the practice of righteousness should look like this and not like that. 
And now he's giving us in chapter 7 some specifics about how it is that we live our lives. And what we've seen the last few weeks is chapter 7 is really dealing with a much more broad sort of, we're going to live this way and we're not going to live that way. You, you can't be saying to other people, be righteous if you're not pursuing righteousness. And, and, and you can't be the Pharisee saying, well this is how Christians should live when you're not even saved. And, and you need to be someone who's asking God for that pursuit of righteousness. You're seeking to walk according to his word. You need to be that kind of person. That's who we need to be. This is the gist of chapter 7. So when we look at that in the flow of which it's come, then I think we should look at this as a warning to Christians. A warning to those who are followers of Jesus. A warning to believers. Now, I understand that, that there are a lot of parallels here with, with us today and there are some dissimilarities. The believers of Jesus' time were still under the old covenant. The Holy Spirit hadn't been given. They're not empowered to live like we are. But nonetheless, the warning here, I think, is still valid to us. Now, if, if, you've, if you've always understood this as being a couple of verses that purely speak about believers, unbelievers, salvation, not being saved, then, then we'll come to that in a moment. I'm coming there. I have it ahead of me. But I want you to understand that in the natural flow of the passage, the way we should first understand this is telling us as followers of Jesus what we need to be careful of. Most of these things that he said have been warnings. From the end of chapter 6, don't worry. Chapter 7, do not judge. And we're told here that we must enter through the narrow gate. And in other words, if we are going to progress, then we need to go through the narrow gate. Now, I know the word enter is here. I know the word enter presumes the beginning. But the point here is the two ways. And, and it's, I think it's natural as we read this that we go from, yes, this is how we should live, to this is the way of salvation. And that's exactly where he kind of leads us on to in the following sections. But for now, let us understand it for ourselves. We must go through a narrow gate. And the way of destruction is through a wide gate and a broad road, a broad way. The two ways is something that has existed throughout Scripture. Proverbs is big on it, and then the whole of the book of Psalms is huge on it. In fact, the book of Psalms begins exactly with that. That there is the way of the righteous, and there is the way of the wicked. That's how Psalm 1 is laid out for us, and it may well be worth our while just considering. You don't need to turn there, I'm not going to be here long. But how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away, Therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. This is absolutely crucial. 
And when we talk about way and way, you're supposed to think about Psalm 1. There is a way that is the way of the wicked. And it is a way that we are not to walk in, not to stand in, and not to sit in. And it will lead to perishing. The way of the wicked itself will perish. Isn't it intriguing, by the way, when Matthew, I do believe, is deliberately pointing us to Psalm 1, that it specifically says, the wicked will not rise in the judgment. I wonder if there is any parallel there with the the concept of not judging and the log in your own eye preventing you from seeing the speck in your brother's eye. That those who would say, ah, this is wrong, but they themselves are condemned, they have no place in judgment. I'm not sure that's what Psalm 1 meant in its, you know, in its most immediate context, but I wonder if there is a nudge to that by Matthew. But we have these two ways, and into Psalm 2, which I won't read because we've dealt with it so many times, but we clearly see the, the judgment that is going to come and the result of the two ways. That the ones who kiss the son lest he become angry will not perish in the way. And they are blessed for taking refuge in him. But it is those who oppose him that will be crushed. And so these two ways are very, and they're again, they're a part of the book of James and elsewhere. And there are these two ways. And, and these two ways are the way of a believer and the way of an unbeliever. I'm not suggesting that they're not. If anyone's, you know, again, I'm not saying we shouldn't use these verses in the context of salvation. I think, though, the point of them being at this point in the text is that what Matthew, what Jesus, rather, through, through Matthew, is warning us is that for us who seek to live righteously, the way to being unrighteous in our walk, in our practice, is breathtakingly easy. It is so easy for any one of us to slip into selfishness. To slip into pride. To slip into lust. And into greed. It is so easy for us to seek our comfort and well-being above the righteousness of Christ. It's so easy for us to give up. It's so easy for us to despair and not to trust in Christ. It's so easy because the sin in our flesh remains. And it is a way that has all sorts of reasons to go down. Comfort, relief, expressing a frustration... All of these things lead us into a path that is broad and wide and easy. And it is difficult, narrow, constricting to get through the right way, the right path. I see this all the time. There, and I won't pick on certain doctrines, but there are, you know, depending on your circle, I guess the doctrines differ. But it's so easy for us to say, well, I don't really want the Bible to say that. And so we immediately gravitate towards the teachers, the commentaries, the books, the pastors that will tell us that it doesn't say that. Because we want to live how we want to live. We don't want our tree shaken. 
We don't want to, to have our, our sins exposed and we don't want to live, have to live a way that we don't want to live. To put it succinctly, what we really want is to perceive ourselves to be righteous as we go through life as Christians while at the same time getting to do the things that we wanted to do anyway. And that, my friends, is exactly what the Pharisees did. That is the context of the Sermon on the Mount. That is the whole issue here. It's a wide, wide, easy road. And it's a road that leads to destruction. And I want us to understand, yes, this is a principle that is true. Yes, the context of Psalm 1 is that there is this way that is the way of the believer and there is this way that is the way of the unbeliever. But Matthew here, like James in his letter, is warning the believer not to be double-minded and not to think that we can live like an unbeliever if we're actually a believer. God will discipline those he loves. And it may well be that the unbeliever can enjoy their sin for a while. It may well be that the unbeliever can enjoy the fruits of their sin for the most of their lives. Though, of course, judgment and perishing will ultimately follow. But for us as Christians, that isn't an option. If we're truly saved, we mourn over sin... We hunger and thirst after righteousness. And when we're tired and when we're weary and when our faith is weak and when we feel hurt by the Lord and the circumstances that He has allowed us to walk in, it is so easy for us to excuse our sin, to excuse our compromise. Oh, well, this person isn't living like how they should, so why should I? Oh, well, things haven't worked out at all and I'm just tired and weary. And we have all of these excuses that we come up with. Adulteresses, James says. Loving the world more than we love God. It's so easy for us to walk as if we were an unbeliever. But there will be no joy for us. And we will regret the compromises that we make. And so verses 13 and 14 is a warning to us that the path is a narrow one. And yes, the path of salvation as opposed to being a non-Christian is a narrow one. And yes, the broad way that is not being saved leads to destruction. But friends, as we leave these two verses and press on, I want to just hammer this home to you. I have been a Christian for almost 40 years. I have been a pastor for sort of 20 plus years. And I have been to many churches in many different, um, uh, many different types over the years. And I've kept in contact with friends going all the way back to the beginning of my faith and I will tell you this that purely talking about Christians those who pursue righteousness at the expense of their own comfort and well-being those who refuse to compromise on scripture and those who seek to be radical in their faith for Christ are astonishingly few even within the body of Christ. 
You can. You can do it. You can get away with it. You can put on your Christian clothes on a Sunday. You can play church. You can have the life that you want. And I can promise you, it will be a frustrating life. Or, you can bow the knee and walk for him and him alone. Friends, die to yourselves daily. Die to your goals, your plans, your wishes, what you think you deserve, what you want. Just die to it. That is the way of destruction. Trust in Christ. Trust in his sovereignty. Trust in his goodness. I'm so glad we sung those songs at the beginning today. Beholding who God is, sitting on his throne, and then after that, contemplating on the goodness of Christ. Keep those those truths at the forefront of your mind as you walk through difficult circumstances. He is sovereign and he is good. And let us walk in the path that is narrow and constricting. And it follows from there quite nicely and naturally that we come now to this section. And again, like so much of the Sermon on the Mount, so many of these sections are known in isolation, but not in the flow of context. But you'll know these verses, many of you already. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Isn't it astonishing how many parts of the Sermon of the Mount have found themselves in popular culture completely removed even from the concept of God, the idea of a wolf in sheep's clothing? Everybody knows about that, even if they never read the Bible. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits, are grapes gathered from the thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by your fruits." These are the verses that then transition from how we walk as believers and the consequences of our walk to the contrast again between true believers and unbelievers. And I think we can see that. The picture that's painted here is one of trees and fruits. The idea is that a tree produces a certain kind of fruit. If you have an apple tree, you're not going to be getting oranges off it. And if you have an orange tree, you're not going to be getting apples off it. That's the basic premise. And, you know, some of you will talk about grafting and what have you. That's not the point. Just shy away from that. The the main point of the text stands true, okay? That a tree will produce the fruit because of the kind of tree that it is. And that is a basic principle of horticulture that we can understand and that we Uh, we get the point that is being made. He then further goes beyond that to rather than just say apples and oranges, apples and pears, peaches and nectarines or whatever else, he, he goes beyond that to say, well, that means that a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit and a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. 
In other words, rather than taking particular types of fruit that are kind of like, you know, well, I prefer oranges, oh, well, that's interesting, I prefer apples, you know, that kind of, you know, uh, subjective judgment, that rather he's just saying straight, there is good fruit and bad fruit. And yes, there is perhaps an echo, I don't think it's strong enough to be an illusion, but perhaps there's an echo to the Garden of Eden and the trees that are there, um, and there was a tree that they were to not eat of, and then of course the other trees they could eat of. There are trees that are not good for eating, and there are trees that are good for eating. That is the contrast and the distinction. And so, taking the broader principle of, you know, A tree of one kind doesn't grow another type of fruit, and then putting that together with the good and bad principle, we get the broad concept that if there is a tree that produces bad fruit, then that is a bad tree, and if a tree produces good fruit, then that is a good tree. And that is the principle that is is given to us to illustrate a point. And the point that it is illustrating is found in the first one and a half verses. So we need to just consider those verses to get the point of the analogy. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The idea here is this, that there are those who come as prophets. Now, we are in a very different era today. We're not in an era where we have, uh, you know, modern day prophets prophesying words that God has spoken to them directly. Ephesians 2.20 makes it very, very clear that um, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church and the church is being built upon them. We aren't building the foundations anymore. At that time, though, however, not only was it a time when there were still prophets, but Jesus was functioning as one, and there was another old covenant prophet that was operating at that very time, and that was, of course, John the Baptist. So we are very much in the time of prophets. And so John the Baptist is the the prophet of the day, as it were, and his message is the same message as Christ, which is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message of the good prophet. And that prophet has fruit that comes along with his message. We'll talk about that in a moment. So the, the, the false prophet is going to be the one who brings a message that is contrary to the message that is being brought by the true prophet. God is saying this, ah, no he's not, he's saying that. Now, one of the most dangerous things that exists in the church today is the spirit of ecumenism. An ecumenical spirit. This idea, well, let's just forget all of our differences and come together. I do not know of anywhere in the letters to the churches where any of the writers of those letters to those churches says, you know what, I hold this doctrine, but if you hold a different one, we shouldn't squabble about this stuff. But rather, throughout the New Testament letters, unity comes on the basis of truth. And truth comes through the word of God. And I fully understand, and I'd be the first to say, that there are primary doctrines, and there are secondary doctrines, and there are tertiary doctrines. And there are doctrines whereby I disagree with someone, and I would not go to their church. And there are doctrines that I may disagree with people who come to this church. And that's fine. But the general sense 
that we should all kumbaya, we should all be one, we should all gather together. You've heard people say, haven't you? Oh, well, we all love Jesus. So what does it matter? That is what's being addressed here. Because the, the equivalent in that culture at that time, in this context, of somebody saying, well, let's not get all heavy about doctrine. Don't we all love, shouldn't we all just love Jesus? The equivalent of that there is saying, well, we, all, we want to just follow Yahweh. The Pharisees, if you ask them how they were living, would tell you, we're following Yahweh. We're Yahweh's. We're servants of Moses. We're keeping Mosaic law. That's exactly what they say to Jesus later on. We're the descendants of Abraham. We're the the disciples of Moses. We are are the, the people of Yahweh. That's who we are. And there are many today who will say the same, but just change Yahweh to Jesus. We love Jesus. And there are churches this day around this land that are full of people raising their hands, praising this Jesus they claim to love. What is clear here in this verse is that it can't be as simple as somebody simply saying, I represent God and here's what I think. It cannot be that. There has been throughout Bible history false prophets. There are those who say God thinks this, God thinks that, God believes this, God declares this, and they have been wrong and they have been false. And we need to understand that this is not a matter whereby we can simply say, oh well, they love Jesus, we can just disagree. Because the text here tells us that they're actually ravenous wolves disguised as sheep. What is clear in this passage is that while they might profess to be people of faith, they are not at all. And I fear for the church in this country, in this generation... Because we have had an entire generation of people just saying, I love Jesus, and that's been enough. And the questions stop then. I cannot tell you the number of people that I know that professed Christ to have fallen away. It breaks my heart just to think about it. I can't even begin to tell you the number of people who have Bible verses on their social media while they live like the world. It's just a mess in the church today. An absolute mess. And the time has come for us to say it's not enough to claim to be a prophet. The issue is, are you a false prophet or a true prophet? Is your profession of Christ false or true? Now, in this context, yes, it's clearly talking about those who teach, those who speak for God. I think that there is an application of this to all of us because we all claim to represent God. When someone says, I just love Jesus, I'm not a theologian, that is theology. Right there. That's them telling you their theology. Bible stuff doesn't matter much. It's all about our emotions. That's what they're telling you. That is theology. It's very, very bad theology, but it's theology nonetheless. And so all of us are acting in this way to some degree, and I think that's why in the next passage, 
it goes on to deal with believers versus unbelievers in the most clear and defining sense, and that's where we'll be next time. But I think here, the onus and the emphasis is upon those who are the prophets, the leaders, the teachers of the day. So let us look at that then and consider what is the difference between the good fruit and the bad fruit. If somebody says, hey, I'm from God, hey, I'm telling you what God says and what God thinks, how do we discern? What is clear from this text is that we discern from the fruit from whether the fruit is good, whether the fruit is bad. That's how we discern. And just as you can't gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, so you can't get good fruit from bad trees and bad fruit from good trees. Now, I understand that there is good that is done even by those who are enemies of the gospel. I get that. I understand that. I understand that the Bible teaches that Pharaoh was used for the glory of God, even in the midst of his rebellion. The good came from Pharaoh, because God is able to bring good even from our sins. I also understand that sometimes people who are are terribly wicked, false teachers, sometimes say things that are true. A broken clock is, of course, always right twice a day. But I think beyond that, beyond that, the whole way in which false teachers work is that they give us a whole bunch of truth while getting key parts wrong. So I don't want us to think that when it says a good tree can't produce bad fruit, that we should look at some person, some ministry, some teacher, and say, ah, some good has come from it. Bible says that good fruit can't come from bad trees. Therefore, this entire ministry is good. That's not what this verse is saying. What it's saying is that overall, what is brought forth from false prophets is bad fruit, because they themselves aren't saved. That the entire tree, right down to the roots, is false. To become a Christian, it is not about changing the leaves or the fruit. It is about a complete replanting from scratch. That's why we call it being born again. Rebirth. Regeneration. You don't change the existing tree. You need a whole new tree. Because the tree that exists before you're a Christian is a tree that is a bad tree and won't produce good fruit. And for there to be good fruit, there needs to be another whole tree. So the question then remains, what is it that we're looking for in false prophets? So let's unpack it. I've got a couple of things here that we need to be looking at. And of course we need to understand this in what context? In the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And of course in the context of Scripture. Firstly, when we have the expression false prophets, we should always be looking at the fact that there are false prophets throughout the Bible. The Mosaic Law, which, by the way, had a application for to that day. This is a people who are living under Mosaic Law. Jesus has just exegeted the Mosaic Law for them. Jesus has just told them, this is how you should live according to what Moses said. They are under Mosaic Law at this time. And the Mosaic Law had a wonderful way of dealing with false prophets. You stone them. That got rid of your false prophet problem. 
And of course, one of the easiest ways to determine whether a prophet was false or not was simply, is what they have said will happen, has it happened? The modern charismatic movement teaches fallible prophecy. They teach the doctrine that modern day prophets can get it wrong. I challenge you folks to look at the Bible and the the shifting from Old Covenant to New Covenant. I challenge you to look at it and to find me anything that is worse under the New Covenant. Find me anything that is worse under the New Covenant. The New Covenant is an improvement on the Old. Under the Old Covenant, prophets prophesied accurately to such an extent that if anybody misprophesied, got something wrong, you could just call them a false prophet and you'd immediately stone them to death. This idea that you can prophesy or speak the words of God and somehow get it completely wrong and, huh, my bad, I'll get it right next time, maybe, is absolutely alien to Scripture. Now, I don't think that here he is only speaking about prophets. I think what Jesus is clearly doing here is he is speaking in the context of his rebuke against Pharisaic Judaism, which is where this whole sermon is is, is seated. And so what he's essentially saying in a barbed way to the Pharisees is you be really careful when you teach stuff, because if you get it wrong, are you not simply a false prophet? And you know what we do with false prophets. That's kind of the implication of what he's saying here. There's implications to the Pharisees. But I think firstly, if we're looking at it in the purely prophets giving prophecy in the sense of future events occurring, in the sense of what we call uh, foretelling, then if somebody gets something wrong, they're stoned to death under Mosaic law, period. None of you should say, ever say, thus saith the Lord. And to be really honest with you, the the whole sort of God told me in any way, shape or form, even the, the, the sort of the, I don't know, the tentative, I think God might be saying or all that. Just, just leave all of that in the trash can. Just, just get rid of it, throw it away, because there are consequences of this. And we just, we just want to be really, really careful. Is there a place for us saying, well, you know, providentially this hasn't occurred and maybe this is what God wants us to do? That's fine. But the idea that God has put a, a thought in your head and, and that this is him directly speaking to you, that's the place that we simply don't, don't go to. Be careful saying, thus says is the Lord, no matter how you, you reclothe it or how you, you disguise it. If you get stuff wrong, you're a false prophet, period. And we're always going to get stuff wrong because there are no prophets today. So I think in the, in, the, in the most obvious, broadest sense, false prophets get stoned. Be careful not to be a false prophet. They are misrepresenting God. But clearly, in the context of Sermon on the Mount, there is another layer here. And that's because the, the prophets didn't merely foretell. The prophets also foretold. They foretold in the sense that they proclaimed doctrine. 
They said, this is going to happen, and God is like this, and this is what God says, and this is God's warning, and this is God's judgment. What has become perfectly clear in the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is that Pharisaic Judaism and the, the, the message that Jesus and John were preventing were completely irreconcilable. Completely irreconcilable. And one was true and one was false. And the people from this point forwards, as we leave chapter 7 and we get into chapter 8 and on, and as we move towards the crucial juncture of chapter 12, the people have got to decide which side they're on. I will never stop condemning the prosperity gospel. Joel Osteen is not a believer. He is not a Christian. He can talk about Jesus as much as he likes. Most of those preachers on TBN, they're not, they're not saved. And I can say that categorically because the gospel that they present is a false gospel. Paul says in Galatians 1, if an angel comes from heaven and presents to you another gospel, let that be an anathema, cursed, condemned. No false gospels, even from angels. The message, the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, is is a message of salvation by works. It is a false gospel and it must be condemned. The message of the health, wealth and prosperity gospel on TBN is a false gospel and it must be condemned. The message of the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses who desperately go out of their way to say, oh, we're just Christians, even though they themselves don't believe that. It's a false message and it is a deceitful thing. They are wolves in sheep's clothing and they must be condemned because they are false gospels. Mormonism began, allegedly, with an angel appearing and giving the message of Mormonism. Do I think that an angel appeared? Quite possibly. A fallen angel. And that is exactly what happened at the beginning of Islam. And we'll save this for another day, but Mormonism has more in common with Islam than it does with Christianity. They both arose as subsets of Christianity in a Christian context. They both began with an angelic being coming and giving a message. And they both develop differently because simply they live in a different time period with a different culture surrounding them. That's the biggest difference. Not what they are in their essence, but the culture that they find themselves in. We condemn false messages and false teaching. And we must never apologize for doing so. Do you see how quickly this followed from judge not? (laughs) We go from judge not to... Don't let those false prophets in. You're going to have to judge which are false by looking at their fruit. So that one of the key things about fruit here is, is the teaching in alignment with Scripture? That's what the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount has been about. The Pharisees' teaching was in alignment with the rabbis. But was it in alignment with Moses? Jesus said no. And therefore, those who are pushing this are pushing false doctrines. Guys, there are many, 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 many churches today who are your typical seeker-friendly church who pull in PR crews to tell them how to bring people in, who are more concerned about bums on seats than they are about preaching truth, 
that are kind of charismatic contemporary, cool and friendly, and they're more concerned about you having five steps to this and seven steps to that and six ways of this than actually being taught the scripture in context. And I know that there are many sheep in those churches, but there are so many goats as well. And it's time to just come out and be separate. It's time to be people who are going to say, no, I'm walking this way, I'm not going to risk walking that way. If I'm surrounded in a church, churches of unbelievers that are often, they're often pastored by unbelievers. And you should know that they're not true because the message is just a message of, well, let's give you the best life possible. Let's make you comfortable. Rather than teaching, the way is narrow. And not just narrow when we want more money in the offering. Oh, that's really difficult. But the way is narrow. You should give more. But narrow in the sense of just not pursuing your own comfort. Not pursuing your own well-being. Not seeking your own way, but rather bowing the knee before Christ and seeking to live for Him. And false doctrine and, and the refuting of false doctrine, the following of the truth, is never ever popular. We are in an era where most evangelical churches are still able to say that homosexuality is a sin. But the churches and the pastors that call themselves evangelical, that hold to those truths, are dropping by the week. And we tolerate things, and we tolerate a similar exegesis in in areas like divorce, simply because we're used to it and we're comfortable. And I tell you, in another generation, there are churches that we might call sound today that will tolerate the sin of homosexuality just because they've had a generation to get comfortable with it. We have got to stand on the word. We have got to resist and rebuke sort of worldly thinking and and woke speak and, and all of this nonsense that's around us. And we have to be prepared to be hated for it. And we've got to stand firm and say, I don't care if I'm hated. I am not going to go on the road that leads to destruction. I'm going to walk the right way. And there are false teachers and false prophets that are desperate to come in and lead churches on the broad way of destruction. And the way that we know them is, are they teaching the Word of God? And when a church can't even bring itself to teach the Bible as the very essence of what it does, there should be red flags for us everywhere. There are churches up and down the land that this last month have had sermons on the movie Barbie rather than preaching the Bible. And that is not an exaggeration. I am not talking about one or two bizarre cases. I am talking about thousands of churches that do sermons on movies. There's a member of this church who arrived here for the first time fleeing another church in just up the road where he came in a hurry because that there they were preaching about Cardi B and rap. That's a rapper if you don't know. Rappers and um, pop music and they did series of sermons on movies and they're always trying to appeal to the culture. We are not here to fit into culture. We're here to come to the culture and say, repent! Because your path is wide, but it leads to destruction. And the true way is narrow. You see how I got to evangelism with that passage in the end? I said I would. 
This, this is how it needs to be. So we need to be people of the word, and those who teach need to teach the word, and we need to build our lives around the world, because the bad fruit, predominantly in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, is false teaching, false ways to obtain righteousness, false definitions of righteousness, and a false prophet exposes themselves. Now, it's easy with an Osteen and a false gospel to say, not saved. But in our own circles, people that we maybe went to their conferences a decade ago and bought their books, these kind of, this kind of nonsense is, is coming into the church. And we need to be careful. And I'm not saying that every time you get a, a pastor saying that they're going to employ people in their church on the basis of a sort of equity quota as some have done more recently that we should immediately say they're unsaved because we know how easy it is for us to slip onto the wide path but we should not allow for any of that in our midst but the third way that we determine the fruit I think contextually is this. There's three ways. Let me just go through them in case you've missed, you know, so you get your, where we're at. The first one was, was whether it happens or not. So in, in the realm of foretelling, it's, it's not gonna rain for the entire summer. Ah! You're a false prophet. Done. Finished. That's over. And in our context, Ephesians 2.20, there are no prophets today, so your declaration of being a false prophet is false. Period. We're done. So there is that foretelling that would expose a false prophet. That's fruit number one. That is obvious in the context of scripture as a whole. The main context, as I've said in the Sermon on the Mount, is the foretelling. The speaking of the word, the speaking of truth, the speaking of the defining of righteousness. This is how we should live. This, more than anything else, is the key way of recognizing bad fruit in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. But we have to also see a third way of recognizing bad fruit, which is normally the main one in sermons, which is why why I'm making such an emphasis to say it's not the main one, but it is there nonetheless, is the fruit in the sense of character in our own lives. Why? Because the Sermon on the Mount has been saying, not only this is what righteousness is, but you should be hungering and thirsting after it, and you should be living this way. I think it's a little over-simple for us to simply say, well, if you're not living right, then you're not a Christian. But there is an element of that, as is going to become clear. I don't think we can exclude this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, though I don't think it's the main focus in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. But if we are living unrighteously, it does expose that we don't understand what righteousness is, And us neither knowing righteousness nor living righteousness is a real red flag that maybe we're not one of the righteous ones. That's just the reality of it. If we live with a habitual lifestyle that is unrighteous, without mourning over our sin, without pangs of consciousness, then we have to ask ourselves these difficult questions. And the reason why we have to, and we'll come back to this next time, is because of the passage that follows. There will be those 
who will say on that day, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you. Not I did know you, but you went off the path. I never knew you. You were never saved in the first place. And so there is a place where we would ask and we would know. But the conclusion of this passage, the conclusion of this sermon is verse 20. You will know them by their fruits. If someone is speaking truth or speaking a lie, you know them by their fruits. And in the context, the biggest thing is is what they're speaking true. And character will back that up, but is what they're speaking true. I have told you for years and years and years in this church, don't be pastor parrots. Pastor says this, pastor says that. No interest in it at all. I am a fallen man like you. If I teach you Bible and I show you from the passage why contextually what it's saying is this and not that, then do it because the Bible says it, not because I said it. And if you disagree with my interpretation, then I'm, then I might well be wrong and go with what the Bible says. But we need to be people of the word. We live in a time where people are calling good evil and evil good. We are living at a time when churches that have historically been evangelical are going more and more progressive. They're going more and more woke. They're going more further and further away from Scripture. They're fitting in with the culture rather than telling the culture to change. And it's happening constantly. The two greatest preachers ever to come out of my homeland, you probably know them both, Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones. We used to go to a church that was literally around the corner from Martin Lloyd-Jones' church. It would be the equivalent of kind of crossing over to the buildings on the other side of Glen Oaks, just across the way. But by the time we were going to church there, there was already a false prophet who was the pastor of that church standing in the pulpit of Lloyd-Jones where he'd faithfully proclaimed the gospel and had such a powerful expository preaching ministry. And we used to sit on the steps and pray for that church, Westminster Chapel. Today on its website, it doesn't mention Lloyd-Jones, Today on its website, it tells you how inclusive it is. It's going to happen to every church that doesn't stand firm. Where's the church of Corinth? Church of Ephesus? Church of Philippi? There are churches today that could fall, and this one could fall if we are prepared to compromise. We need, as a church, to decide we will not capitulate. And we need to decide as individuals that we will not capitulate. It's so easy for a church to have a wolf come in while wearing the clothing of a sheep, to lead all of the sheep there to slaughter, to create an environment that is comfortable for wolves. But you will know them by their fruit. Imagine living in the Arctic Circle, an Inuit, Eskimos as we used to call them, 
you don't have social media, you don't have TV, and suddenly you go on a trip and you come to visit us here in Burbank, California, and someone shows you all the fruit in the grocery stores, would you even be able to name any of them? Sadly, many Christians are like that. They can't tell the difference between good fruit and bad fruit. If you only know false teachers by their fruit, then friends, we need to devote ourselves to becoming horticultural in a spiritual sense. Knowing the difference between our fruits, true righteousness, false righteousness, Good practice, bad practice, good doctrine, bad doctrine. Because our lives and the lives of those who follow after us depend upon it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness towards us. May this word go to the hearts of those who need to hear whether this day or through recordings, that it might convict those who are on the wrong path, whether they are Christians that are being derailed or whether they're unbelievers who are playing a part. Convict us of sin. May we mourn over it. May we hunger and thirst after righteousness. And Lord, may we ask for it. May we find it as we seek for it, as you show us the way and open the door. Amen.